Yep, Hebrews chapter 10, part two. It was so weird last week. I said, open up to Hebrews 10. I said, we'll finish the chapter. And somebody up in this area scoffed at me. I was so insulted, but you were prophetic, weren't you? So yes, this is Hebrews 10, 35 through 39, part two. Tips for tumultuous times. Let's start reading in verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Let's pray. Lord, thank you once again for your word this morning. And thank you, Jesus, for the glorious gospel by which we've been saved. And we ask that you make us men and women this morning that are alive to your gospel, alive to your truth. Men and women who are involved in mission, your mission, God. In our immediate context, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our families. Give us this morning a heart for what it is you are doing in our community, in the nation, and in the nations. Open our eyes to our involvement in that, Lord. Teach us to live expectantly and teach us to be obedient this morning, Lord. We confess that we are a wayward people, easily given to disobedience and the abusing of grace, but we ask that you change our hearts. Make us people to lovingly obey you, Lord. So speak to us now and transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit working through your holy word. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. As I said, the title of this message is Tips for Tumultuous Times. And of course, we know contextually that the original audience was living in very difficult times. They were living in a context of persecution. It was getting hard for them to live out their Christianity within society. We also are living in tumultuous times, not the same situation as them, but we've got our own drama, our own difficulty, and we face opposition to our Christian faith. Immediate and near opposition within our families for some of us, within our sphere of influence and our friends, within the community, within society, even in the nation, there's all sorts of opposition. And beyond that, we have the general difficulty of the days in which we live. Wars on multiple fronts, financial difficulties, all of these things. And Christians are called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're called to walk through this world according to a higher power, the person Jesus Christ. And so we have a few tips for living in tumultuous times this morning. Drawn right from the text, the first one is draw near to God. The second one is do the will of God. And the third is wait for the Son of God. Now, the first point we covered last week, more or less, draw near to God. And we talked about that place of intimacy with God being where we draw strength from, being where character is developed, being where we are, come from a place where we can develop confidence to face opposition. It says in verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. That confidence is drawing near to Jesus Christ and the confidence that comes from that. So point two this week, doing the will of God. It comes from verse 36, where it says, For you have need of endurance, 
so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Let's start off first with that phrase, you have need of endurance. The idea is suffering patiently. Nobody likes to suffer. Is there anybody here that likes to suffer? If you do like to suffer, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) Nobody likes to suffer, and yet it's common to all of us. In one way, shape, or form, we all suffer. And what the Bible is saying here is that there are times where we need to suffer patiently. Not all the time. A lot of suffering is not necessary. But there are times where we are called to suffer patiently. And we'll explain that in a moment. The word endurance there is hupa mene. Hupa mene. Literally comes from two Greek words. Hupa, which is a preposition that means under, among other things. And then mone, which means to remain. So the idea of the Greek word is to remain under. So the idea here of them enduring is that these Christians, the original audience, were to remain under or suffer patiently the persecution they were experiencing as opposed to trying to escape it by the only way possible, which was to deny their faith. Now that's the context. Either they would endure it patiently by the grace of God and with the help of God, or they would seek to get out from underneath it by denying their faith. I want us to turn very quickly to 1 Peter chapter 2. Keep your finger in Hebrews 10. We'll be right back. But go to 1 Peter 2. First Peter, just a couple books after Hebrews. We'll be looking in chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Different context here. Same principle. First Peter, chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters. That's a context. A different context, but a difficult one nonetheless. With all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable, or as the NIV puts it, harsh, literally in the Greek, perverse. So it's talking about slaves in that context, in that culture, and to them, they're supposed to show respect to their masters even when their masters are jerks. Now, we can all relate to this. Most of us have worked for somebody that was a jerk, haven't we? We've all had people that we've been under that were just jerky in nature. We weren't slaves per se. We were getting paid to do that. But we've all experienced being under the authority of someone that was a real turkey. Now, much more difficult for the slaves in the first century, but the word of God tells them here that they are to, with all respect submit to their masters. Because look what it says in verse 19. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Let's read that verse again. That's a difficult concept. This finds favor, literally grace. Okay? This finds grace. We experience the grace of God. If for the sake of conscience toward God, because of our relationship with God, our standing before him, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. When a man bears up, a man stands firm. 
It's what we're talking about in context. A man continues to do the right thing even in the face of injustice directed at him. Now, we are to fight for justice for other people, but there will be times when we suffer unjustly. And how unjust was it for the original audience in the book of Hebrews? They were suffering loss, material loss, loss of property, and some of them would suffer the loss of their lives for their belief in Jesus Christ. But the word of God is telling them without apology to suffer patiently, to endure, to not give up, to not give in. The passage continues in verse 20. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? We've all experienced that. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor or grace with God. For you have been called for this very purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. Verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and yet while being reviled, he did not revile and return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus entrusted himself in the face of his suffering to the will of the Father. What we need to begin to do in life is see the purpose of God even in difficulty. We're real quick to see the purpose of God in good things. You get your Christmas bonus check. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You knew I needed it. It meets my bills just perfectly. You know I wanted to get that certain thing for so-and-so. And now it's God, I see your hand of providence in this blessing. We're quick to see that. And that's good. We ought to. But what about when it doesn't come through? What about when you get laid off just before Christmas, as has happened for hundreds of thousands of Americans this year? The Christian is to look for the hand of God even in the midst of that difficulty and begin to say, God, what is your purpose in the midst of my trial? Not that God caused it, but that God is good even through it. The idea is Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called in according to his purpose. It's not that God rang up your boss and said, you know what, lay so-and-so off. Your boss did that. But you see, the Christian can appeal to a higher authority. And the Bible teaches that God is intimately and infinitely concerned with all the details of our lives. And nothing comes our way, but it passes through the the lens of his sovereignty first. And so the Christian can, in the face of difficulty and opposition and even unjust suffering, say, okay, God, I trust myself to you who judges righteously. Lord, work a good work in the midst of that. You see, that's the hope that we have in this world, that our God is bigger than, that our God is able to work all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But we don't want to fail missing, or we don't want to fail to look. What am I trying to say? We don't want to miss the opportunity to look for that in the midst of it. We've got to slow down and say, okay, Lord, I'm having some difficulties here. I'm going to entrust myself to you. Now, the primary way that we do that, going back to Hebrews 10.36, is by doing the will of God while suffering unjustly. Okay, that's the protocol. You do the will of God. In difficult times, do the right thing. This is where we often fail. 
And this then is where we often miss the redemptive purpose of God in a difficult situation is that we fail to do the right thing. And we need to learn to do the right thing when things go wrong. This is usually when we take things into our own hands. And when you take something into your own hands, you're taking it out of God's hands. Things have gone wrong. Times are hard. Trust the Lord. The primary way that you do that is by doing what you know to be right. Here's the problem with so many Christians. They don't know what's right. They haven't had their senses trained to discern good from evil by nourishing themselves in the word of God. Hebrews chapter 5 says we've got to nourish ourselves in the word of God, and by doing so, we have our senses trained to discern good from evil, right from wrong. If you haven't immersed yourself in the word of God, and the word of Christ is not dwelling richly within you, then it's hard for you to know the right thing in the difficult time. But it is imperative, according to our text today, that we do the right thing. So, brothers and sisters, while it is still day, walk circumspectly. Spend time in the Word of God. Prepare yourself. Immerse yourself. Let the Word be dwelling richly within you so that your first response to difficulty is not visceral. It's not fleshly. It's not carnal. It's not vindictive. It's not mean. It's not seeking self. But it's full of righteousness. It's according to the wisdom of God and the word of God. It's as simple as Proverbs. I think it's 15.1 that says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Man, that verse has changed my life took me a long time to believe that verse. My wife has always believed that verse. You know, we believe the word of God, but there's certain parts that we just never act on. What that really means is you don't believe it. I mean, in all honesty, I'd read that a million times. I've read Proverbs, I, I can't tell you how many times. I've read that over and over again. But my first response is when someone says something mean to me to say something even meaner. And yet the Bible says a gentle answer turns away wrath. And when someone's looking to get me, I'm pretty sure I could get them harder before they get me. If they're looking to hit me, I'm going to hit them first. I'm going to hit them twice as hard. That's my visceral, carnal, carnal, Brit response. But you see, when the word of God is in me and I receive it by faith, I respond differently. Now it's a gentle answer. And what I've seen is I've been putting this practice, this into practice in my life and it's only been in the last year. Are you disappointed in your pastor? <laughs> I am. As I've really been putting that into practice and it's left the realm of ethereal and really become practical. It's changed everything. I mean, a gentle answer really does turn away wrath. You see... It finds favor, literally grace with God. The grace of God enters a situation when you endeavor to do the will of God. But if you do the will of you, then God kind of goes, okie dokie, that's what you want to do me, huh? That's what you want to do me, huh? Go, Go ahead and do it. But when we do the right thing, it invites God into our drama. And don't you want God in the midst of your drama? I need God in my drama. I so need God in my drama. And when we do the right thing, it finds favor, it finds grace with God, it invites him in, and he starts to work in the situation. And so the text is telling us, again, verse 36, you have need of endurance so that when you have done 
the will of God, you may receive what was promised. It just assumes that we are going to do the will of God. Life is like this. Things go wrong. We need to keep that in mind. Our finances are like that. Things go wrong. Keep in mind doing the right thing in your finances. A lot of us are suffering financially right now. Continue to do the right thing. Continue to tithe to God and to God's work. Continue to pay your taxes as your taxes are owed. Don't cut quarters on that. Continue to be generous with people. Continue to do the will of God with your finances. Things are like this in relationships. Relationships go wrong all the time, and Christmas has a way of exacerbating that, doesn't it? Magnifying relational difficulties. Do the right thing relationally and let God work in it. This text assumes that we're going to do the right thing. We have a tendency to take shortcuts, but I want us to be like Daniel, who purposed in his heart to do the right thing. He decided before the difficulty came that he was going to do what he knew to be the right thing in his context. So here's what's important for you and I as studious, conscientious Christians. Survey our lives, survey our land as it lay before us, look at the difficulties, and think how we need to respond biblically. My dad taught me this when he was teaching me how to drive. I was, of course, 15 years old or so, and we were at the intersection of... um, Carp Ave and uh, Casitas Pass, right there by Yo Yum Yum Yogurt. Anybody stoked on Yo Yum Yum? <laughs> Yo Yum Yum is so good. Such a big deal in Little Carpinteria to have frozen yogurt like that. Anyway, they weren't there back then. I think it was still lemon orchards back then. Uh, my dad was teaching me to drive, and, and we came up to the intersection, and we were stopped at the intersection, and he said, okay, now, son, look. Look at these cars over on the right. Think about what they might do. If that car doesn't stop for that light, if that car goes through, or if this guy turns left, now look at this pedestrian over here. What if this kid runs out in the road? Look at this over here. What if that goes happen? And he was teaching me to survey the situation that I might know how to respond because people do stupid things. Kids ride their bikes out in the streets. When I was a little kid, a friend of mine whose name was Thomas was killed right at that intersection. Rode his bike into the street and was hit by a motorhome on its way to the state park and got killed right there. And so when my dad said to me, now, now, look, there's people standing on the corner. This light's about to turn green. What are you going to do if one of those kids runs out in front of you? That, that stuck with me. He was teaching me to survey the situation and to think logically and responsibly about how I might respond. We need to do that with our relationships and with our world biblically. Look at the world around you. Survey it. How do you respond as born-again, spirit-filled, Bible-believing Christians? And then when it happens, do that. Look in 1 Peter 2 if you want to go back there. Sorry to have you flip-flopping. First Peter 2, once again. This time starting in verse 11. It says in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Aliens and strangers mean our citizenship is in heaven. Look in verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. For us, we would read that non-Christians. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers... Their context was a little different. They had different accusations, but we have accusations against us as Christians all the time, especially right now, don't we? Hypocrites, hate mongers, all these different things. So look at this, okay? This is very, very pertinent. 
Again, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among non-believers, we can read that, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, literally as a result of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 15. Verse 15. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's important. You know, the common accusation given against the Christian church is that we're hypocrites. In a way we are, in a way we aren't. A hypocrite literally was an actor, a someone, someone who pretended to be something that they weren't. And that's not who we are as Christians. There are people that pretend to be Christians, but we're literally born again scumbags. That's who we are. We're, we're, we're not faking about that. Yeah, we're scumbags. We're full-on scums and we're saved. We're born again, right? Okay, but what they mean is that we don't always practice what we preach and they've nailed us there. They're right about that. We don't always practice what we preach and we shouldn't make excuses about that. We shouldn't say work in progress, you know, saved by grace or just trying or don't judge. Don't ever, you know what? When someone pulls that out, you're already judged. People only pull that out when they know they're cheese balls. Don't judge me, bro. Dude, I don't need to. Look at you. (laughs) If that's your common phrase, you're blowing it. We need to fess up that as a church, we're not as holy as we ought to be. And the text is saying that that's going to pose more and more of a problem as the world around us is more and more anti-Christ. The original audience in Hebrews were living in a very anti-Christ culture. I mean, they wanted Christians dead. Our culture, I don't know if you've noticed this, but since November has gotten more anti-Christ, at least anti-Christian, at least. That's for sure. And if Christians are to be identified with Christ, which was the original intent, then it has gotten more anti-Christ. Therefore, the way that we behave is going to be more and more of an issue. And our witness is going to be more and more tied to the way that we do or we don't behave. And what the Bible says here is that our accusers will be put to shame when they see the way that we live. The message is out there. The message is going forth. They're hearing it. They need to see it. I think if more people saw it, we might have a greater response. So brothers and sisters, in these last days, it is incredibly important as opposition increases, and I'm telling you, it's going to increase more, that we live more and more right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, when you choose to do right in difficult situations, the context being when you're suffering unjustly, you're going to have to endure. It's going to be hard. It's never going to be the path of least resistance. That's the problem. We're always looking for the path of least resistance, right? We're always looking for that. You know, that's why when water flows down a valley and creates a river, that's why the river always sort of meanders and is crooked because water, as it flows, if it comes against hard ground like rock or bedrock, it'll flow around that until it finds some soft ground. It'll break through and go down. Then it finds another hard area. And so it reroutes and it finds soft. And it's always looking for the path of least resistance. And so it ends up looking like this, a river does. A lot of Christians' walks look just like that because they're always looking for the path of least resistance. And so their walk with Christ is crooked. We're supposed to fasten our hands to a plow 
Anyone that's ever seen Little House on the Prairie knows that you plow in a straight line. (laughs) You plow in a straight line. Jesus said, fasten your hands to the plow and don't look back. The will of God is seldom the path of least resistance. Don't be visceral. Don't be carnal. Don't be looking for the easy way out. Be looking for the right thing. And you only know the right thing if you've been in the word of God. And you've been in the word of God, you will be able to do the right thing. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You see that? Spend time in the word of God, you're going to be equipped for every good work to do the will of God in difficult times realize that the Christian life is not a sprint. And the Bible is full of stories of men and women who started well and finished bad. And the survey of Christianity is full of that as well. Pastors who have been very effective, evangelists who have been very effective, Christians who have been very effective, and then they peter out one way or another, be it sin or just backsliding, whatever it might be. But you see, the Christian life is a marathon. We're in it for the long haul. It's not a sprint. So you've got to prepare yourself. You train differently for a marathon than you do the 100-yard dash, right? It's a whole different thing. You train differently for those two races. Well, we're in a marathon. But it's not only a marathon. It's a marathon with obstacles, right? It's a marathon with water pits and hurdles and, and alligators and sharks and all these different things a Christian life is. It's a marathon with difficulties. And so 2 Thessalonians 3.13 says, As for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If you endeavor to do the will of God in difficult times, in your relational context, you're going to begin to grow weary. It's never the path of least resistance. It will increase conflict and opposition. Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. And so we need to not grow weary in doing good, which is why the first point from last week is so important, drawing near to God, because that's where we find strength. That's where our confidence is renewed. That's where character is built, so that this possibility by the power of the Holy Spirit of not growing weary is even a possibility. Galatians 6, 7 through 9 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap correction. Corruption, But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. You know what that says? That it really does pay to do the right thing. Doing the right thing actually does pay off. You don't all believe that. Not everybody believes that because, again, what we do reveals what we believe, not what we say. What we do shows what we really believe. And so when we're taking shortcuts, when we're doing the wrong thing, when we're conniving, when we're being carnal, visceral, and vindictive, then that shows that we really don't believe or trust the word of God right here, which is do the right thing. Don't lose heart in doing the right thing. You will reap if you do not grow weary. God will work it together for good. You will see the benefits. You will reap the rewards. If you invited God in, he is faithful and good to finish the work that he has begun. You, Christian, persevere. Keep doing the right thing. I did the right thing. It only got worse. Keep doing the right thing. I did it again, and now it's really hard. 
do the right thing. Yeah, I did the right thing. Now everybody hates me. Keep doing the right thing. That's what the Word of God says. Keep trusting yourself to the one who judges righteously your Father in heaven by doing the right thing. And then it says back in our text, flip-flopping again, that you may receive what was promised. Once you have done the will of God, that you may receive what was promised. The word receive here in the Greek means to receive and carry away for use and enjoyment. The promise is the promise of salvation and all of its benefits, temporal and eternal. The word there, once again, receive, means to receive and carry away for use and enjoyment. Now, endurance then is the prerequisite for receiving all the blessings of your salvation. If you cheese out, if you give in, if you choose to do the wrong thing, then you simply miss out on some of those blessings. You don't want to miss out on the blessings of your salvation. It's not that we're in a works-based thing, but rather it's that doing the right thing puts us in the place of blessing. There's a good friend of mine always used to say, under the spout where the glory comes out. He always used to say that. That's where you want to be. You want to be right where God wants you to be, that he could pour blessings into your life. Doing the right thing gets us in that place. And when we don't do that, we miss out on some of the blessings. Again, the word means to receive and carry away for use and enjoyment. Use and enjoyment. Brothers and sisters, we should be enjoying the benefits of our salvation. And so I ask you this morning, are you enjoying your salvation? I mean, you ought to be dang stoked that you're not going to hell. I mean, we just ought to be plain old happy about that, really happy and full of joy. We should be really stoked that we're going to be in heaven, in glory with Jesus Christ. We should be really pumped that we're not slaves to sin anymore. We should really be stoked to be on the right team, the winning team, and to have a Father in heaven who is intimately and infinitely concerned with our lives and who gives us good things. I mean, we should enjoy God and his blessings. If you're not enjoying your salvation, something is wrong. Now, here's a real heart check. Because a lot of us, especially this time of year, get caught up in grumbling and complaining and what ifs and poor me's. Christian, don't do that. That's such a ripoff. That's not who you're called to be in this life. You are called to enjoy your salvation. So heart check right here today. Are you enjoying Jesus? If not, dude, you're blowing it. He is so enjoyable. Are you enjoying the benefits of your salvation? Enjoying doesn't mean just to say hooray, but it means to lay hold of, to actualize, to experience. I mean, are you experiencing the fact that you're free from sin? That it no longer rules you? Man, we're to lay hold of those things. But see, here's the key once again. Endurance is a prerequisite for experiencing those things. So endure in striving against sin. Endure in doing the right thing. You know when you find out when sin doesn't have power over you anymore? Is when you choose to do the right thing, when you continue to fight the good fight, when you continue to resist. See, as long as you choose to resist, you'll find, whoa, I really did have the power by the Holy Spirit to say no. I really am free from that thing. It didn't get me. I was able to stand firm and resist and have the victory. You only experience that blessing if you endure. 
But if you give up, then you're like, oh, see, I did it again. And it has power over me. No, it doesn't. Jesus Christ broke the power structure of sin on the cross. The reason you're not experiencing that is because you're not enduring. You're giving up too quick. You're giving in. The reason you're giving in is because you haven't spent time with Jesus where you develop strength and confidence in character. If you would just get with Jesus and in his word, you would develop strength confidence and character and when the temptations come you find new resolve to say no and when you walk in victory you realize God really did give you the strength and you experience the blessing of righteousness you see that's the way it works starts with drawing near to God leads to doing the right thing enduring in the right thing and then we experience the blessings of God Verse 38, now I want you to skip to that. Skip verse 37 for now. Verse 38 says, My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. My righteous one shall live by faith. Now, I'm going to save the bulk of that because in January, on January 4th, we're going to start Hebrews 11. And we're going to spend 11 weeks in Hebrews 11. And we're going to go real slow through all those vignettes in the Old Testament, talking about all those great men and women of faith and how God worked radically in and through their circumstances. But suffice it to say for today that God says, the righteous shall live by faith. We're not just saved by faith. We've also got to live by faith. And the believer who lives by faith goes on to maturity. The one who doesn't is the one who, who uh, has the risk of shrinking back to destruction, as it says in verse 39. Now, faith is the key to endurance. We're called to walk by faith. And again, this is very simple. How does faith come? Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. In context there in, in uh, Romans 10, it is salvific. It's talking about the faith for salvation. But the principle is the same. The more we take in of the word of God, the more our faith is strengthened. If your diet of the word of God is scant, then you will be emaciated as it comes to faith. It's just like real food. If you eat plenty of nutritious real food, you've got strength to do what you need to do. If you deprive your body of those nutrients, then you simply cannot pull it off. It's basic. It's the same with the word of God. If you're ingesting and digesting, chewing on the word of God, then you will have faith. You neglect the word of God, then you're going to be emaciated, weakened, lacking in the area of faith. And quite frankly, that's just going to make it hard to live. My righteous shall walk by faith and not by sight. Hebrews chapter 5 says that Christians don't grow day by day. They grow word by word. I know Christians, there's Christians in this church. They've been Christians for a couple years. And they are more mature than people in this church that I know have been Christians for 30 years. I'm not going to name names, and aren't you glad? (laughs) But it's absolutely true. Because Christians grow word by word and not day by day. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. That means nothing. If you haven't been cultivating intimacy with Jesus Christ and time in the word of God, so what? 
And yet I've seen some young people get saved who have really gone after Jesus, who have really spent time in his presence, who have really ingested the word of God, and there's a maturity there. There's a steadfastness there. There's a reality there of walking by faith. Christians grow word by word, not day by day. And you see, the thing is, is that faith and circumstances are always going to be in confrontation in our life. Faith and circumstances. Remember when Peter was in the boat with the rest of the boys and there was a storm? And it's interesting because in Matthew 14, Jesus told them to get in the boat. And then they said, well, Jesus, are you coming with me? He goes, no, no, boys, not this time. Get in the boat. And uh, literally in the Greek, anakazo, meaning he forced them, he compelled them to get in the boat. And then Jesus went and sat up on the mountain and watched what happened. Well, lo and behold, a storm came. Do you think that was a kawinky dink? Not by any chance. That was a Jesus Christ ordained storm. Hey, boys, get in the boat and go to the other side. Are you coming? No, not right now. You guys go without me. I'll meet you there later. They get out there and the storm comes. And when they got out there, it was evening. When Jesus finally came, the text tells us that it was the fourth watch of the night, meaning they had been in there fighting the waves for some nine hours in the middle of the night. Um, the reason the Lord left them out there so long was that these were experienced fishermen. It wasn't that big of a deal for them to be in a boat at night because in Israel, you did all your fishing on the Sea of Galilee at night. It wasn't that big of a deal for them to be in a storm. But this was different. This was a God storm. And when Jesus finally came in the fourth watch, he identified himself and Peter, God bless Peter, I can't wait to see that dude. He said, Lord, if it's really you, then, then bid me to come walk on the water to you. I mean, who says stuff like that? <laughs> Nobody says stuff like that. But Peter, I cannot wait. Peter, Lord, if it's really you, then tell me to come walking on the water. <laughs> I imagine Matthew, the tax collector, is like, oh, he's such an idiot. (laughs) Stupid. But the Lord said, okay, Pete, come on. Pete gets out of the boat and he starts walking on the water and he was literally actually walking on the water. I mean, he was doing it. He was walking on the water. And then it says in Matthew 14, that he looked at the wind and the waves and he started to sink. You see, when he simply obeyed the word of God, come, and he kept his eyes on Jesus Christ, he transcended the circumstances. He walked right on top of the very waves that threatened his life just a moment ago. Just was above them. They hadn't gone away. He was just above them. Just obeying Jesus, keeping his eye on Jesus. But when he got his eyes on the circumstances, it overwhelmed him and he started to sink. Faith and circumstances are often going to be in opposition to one another. My righteous shall walk by faith and not by sight. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Look at your circumstances through the lens of who Jesus is. Don't try to look at Jesus through the lens of your circumstances. Next time your circumstances rear their ugly head and seem so big, tell them about how big your God is. Keep Jesus in your heart and mind bigger than your circumstances. And by his word and his will and his grace, you will transcend. You'll walk right on top of that drama. It doesn't go away. It didn't go away until the appointed time. But he walked right on top of it. Verse 39 encourages and says, 
But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but are of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. He encourages them now. He says, a righteous shall walk by faith and not shrink back. He says, but you guys are not going to shrink back. Once again, in the book of Hebrews, every time he warns them, he then encourages them. And in context here, that shrinking back to destruction is the idea, once again, of the loss of salvation that we spoke of in Hebrews 6 and in Hebrews 10. We're reminded of those words that Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And that was the very issue that was confronting them. They were considering denying Jesus Christ before the Roman authorities just to save their skin. And the author of Hebrews is saying, dude, don't do it. And then he says, we're not like that. Come on, that's not who we are in Christ. We're not those who shrink back to destruction. And so he's encouraging these struggling believers to persevere and wait on the Lord. I think of Isaiah 40, the closing verse says, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. That's a promise. That's a promise. And so if you're going through difficult times, wait on the Lord. What does it mean? Draw near and do the right thing. And I guess that this is going to become a three-part sermon. (laughs) We'll finish next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the application you've given us this morning, speaking to us about doing the right thing, persevering in the face of difficulty, drawing near, walking by faith and not circumstances. Now, Lord, I know and I understand that there's a whole lot of different circumstances represented by the lives in this room some really big and some really scary ones. And so we say together, Lord, that we need your help. God, you are faithful, but we also want to be faithful. We want to be faithful men and women to your call on our lives. And so help us, Lord, help us this season as we're facing difficulties to do the right thing. Holy Spirit, would you begin to show us what the right thing is? Even today as we're thinking about our own drama, show us the way out. Thank you for 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which says, no trial has overcome us except for that which is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let us be tempted beyond that which we are able to endure, but with that temptation will provide the way out. Show us the way out, Lord. Open up to us the valley, I mean the door of hope and the valley of trouble. Help us in our circumstances, Lord. You're faithful. Teach us to stand firm according to who you are and to plow a straight line in this life. Help us, Lord. Brothers and sisters, let's draw near now so we can receive strength and confidence, courage, and character. Prayer team is up here to your right and to your left. There are men and women who are mighty in prayer. Take advantage of them this morning. By all means, come and worship the Lord up here.